Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. It's Tuesday, November 26, 2019, as I record this intro, and it's the tail end of NaNoWriMo. I'm a bit behind on my words, but happy to report that I've typed the end three times so far as I wrap up various projects. The first of those was the third and final book in a humorous space opera series called Starship Ass that I've been co-writing over the last year with J.R. Frontera. And to celebrate my birthday, I released it in mid-November, and it's been lovely to get early feedback from readers who loved it. And now, on to our guest. Takiri Erath is an award-winning international thriller novelist. She's a self-made rebel, and she started as a lone immigrant girl who followed her path in life. After years of public service, managing national and international programs for Canada and NATO, she now makes a full-time living writing and speaking with a fearless voice as an author and public speaker. We had a powerful conversation, and it's clear to me that Takiri has a lot of wisdom to offer this world, not to mention a lot of great stories. Takiri Harith, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you, Ethan, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Hey, me too. I'm, I, we live geographically pretty close together and we swim in similar circles. So I feel like it's been just a matter of time before we connect. That is true. We just have a, an international border in between us. But uh, without that, it's just a hop and a skip over uh, to your place, I think. Yeah. And I, I saw you got to talk to my community last month with the Whatcom writers and publishers. Um, and unfortunately, I was really sick and missed the event. But oh. yeah, I hope that went well, too. And it did. So for people who are listening who may not know who you are, because, you know, there's billions of us on this planet, um, <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell people about yourself? Well, I like to think I'm an author, and I am a speaker, and I am an entrepreneur. But above all, Ethan, I'm just an immigrant girl trying to make it in the world and show others uh, what's possible. Mm. Yeah, and, and what does that mean to you? What, what's, what's possible for an, immigrant, for an immigrant world in the world? Well, I think regardless of being an immigrant or not, that's just, that's just who I am. Um, yeah. But I think... The world is so full of potential. I think we humans have so much um, that we can do right now. The the way the 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 way the, the world is moving, the technological um, advancements, the way we can the, what we're doing right now, talking to each other across an international border. I know mm. we're not that far from each other, but I have done this uh, with somebody in Japan, with somebody in London, with somebody in South Africa, in Johannesburg just like you and I are doing it from just, uh, I don't know, half an hour drive away. Mm. Uh, that just makes me feel so excited. And I can't think anything other than we live in the best uh, time in the history of humankind. And if you're not taking the opportunity to, to follow our passions and do what we want to do, um, 
that 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 would be quite a sad life to live. So mm. I am planning to take the reins uh, and go as far as I can. And when you talk about possibilities, I also am very aware that not everybody feels that way or thinks that way. Or they might put limitations on themselves. So I stand up and go, "Hey, if I can do it, I am five foot, tiny little Asian girl. <laughs> I can go it. Then for God's sake, so can you." For God's sake, so. That is so powerfully stated and passionate and clear. And um, is it possible that you you had a career or life, past life in corporations or bureaucracy? Um. <laughs> yes, sadly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me well, about that, just to, <laughs> just to frame where you've gotten to today. That's, that's interesting you say that because I, there was a time in my life I didn't speak as freely as I do now with, mm. uh, because, uh, well, starting from an immigrant girl, if, if I may, I, I started off really with $20 in my pocket <laughs> standing. I, I left a toxic home environment and standing on the streets of Vancouver going, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to make it in this free society. I'm in the Western world now. I can do it. And then suddenly realizing, wait a minute, I didn't even have a place to stay that night. And uh, with, I had a suitcase full of more books than, than clothes and had to figure out very quickly how to take care of myself and then create a, a career, a life, and a path ahead of me. Um, and, you know, at 19, you think the world is your oyster, You can, mm -hmm. do that, which is a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, but it was tough. And why am I telling you this? to say that um, from there, being in that position, my first thought was I got to take care of myself before I can do anything, anything else. So I did the, what, uh, what we call the great Canadian dream or your great American dream, mm. which is um, you go to school, you get a degree or maybe two, you, you get that job and get another promotion, you get up that ladder one by one, you buy your, your home, you buy your, your, your vehicle of mm -hmm. choice and the, you know, the house with a white picket fence kind of um, lifestyle. And that, it took me a while while I was in that trajectory to realize that's not me. Um, I, have, I have something else that I want to do. But yes, I've spent about 15 years working for the Canadian federal government in about five different departments. I managed the risk management um, portfolio for them. So I would go up to senior executives every, every six months to say, here's the status of risk management as for your department, whether it's defense, intelligence, um, hmm. our tax uh, or, or our Coast Guard, and then give them some ideas to think about to strategize the next year. And I worked at NATO as well in a similar, in the performance management, risk management field, managing large scale, multi-million dollar projects. From a, being a 20-year-old immigrant girl with only a ratty suitcase and a blue mm. dress, I think I did okay to get to that level. Um, yeah. But it, uh, you know, it, I realized very quickly that wasn't who, who I am. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say it quickly. It took me almost 15 years in that to say, hold on, uh, buying, upgrading my car is not what I want to do. In fact, downgrading it perhaps is mm. what I need to do. Well, so I guess I, I speak for tomorrow's youth who dream of being a risk manager for the Canadian federal government that um, that dream is possible. That is true. <laughs> if should you choose to accept it and take it on. But one of the cautions I give anyone 
who is, who joins a large organization, especially in the public sector, is in our 20s, we are very idealistic and we should be. We should, you know, that, um, you never, never kill that light within us. But at 20, I walked into places like that with my eyes wide open, like shiny stars and thinking I would save the world. I, you know, working for NATO, it was, it was the biggest defense organization in the Western uh, hemisphere. This is, you know, they're there to protect our standard of living, the way of life and the freedoms that we have, which I strongly believe in. Um, mm. But going into those large organizations, you, you tend to see that things aren't the way they are. The, the bureaucracy, the internal politics, and at large organizations, um, especially mm -hmm. at a very high level, there's the external, the big P politics that can interfere with uh, what you're doing. And you sit there and you go, wait a minute. Um, I, yes, I want to change the world, but this is a very slow, very laborious and cumbersome way of doing it. Now, I am, I'm believing those organizations, mm. but can one little individual um, turn things around in, a, in one lifetime, I think that's harder. Um, if you do want to make a difference, Ethan, if there's somebody young listening in, mm. I would say get into politics. Go and sign up to whatever, whichever spectrum you stand in. Go in and sign up for a, to, to, um, to as, as a, uh, I don't know what you call in the States, but someone who stands for um, whether it's uh, your municipal, your local, your provincial or state mm -hmm. or, or federal uh, office. I think that's where you can make the difference, not mm -hmm. as a cog in a huge organization. And there are people who belong in those organizations who work really well. It wasn't for me. So yeah. just one note of caution. I didn't mean to digress, but I think that's important to share, especially if they're young 20-year-olds watching or listening. Yeah, so so if we're hoping to spare idealistic dreamers from 15 years of working in a <laughs> large bureaucracy, would you recommend that they maybe read some books that can help them figure out why that may not be a good idea? And maybe talk to people. I, I read so many books, and I read many, but I think talking to people, if you're looking for any any industry going up there knocking on doors i used to do what i call information meetings yeah and um i did that in my 20s but it's interesting my idealism got in the way that i didn't believe it when people would say you do realize this is how the structure works and this is normal I, remember i worked in oh, yeah. bureaucracy in asia and in europe and in north america and in the end we are all human regardless of where we come from and we tend to you know, the, the big organizations tend to work in a certain way. So being aware of that, and if it's okay with you, great. But if that, if you want something faster, if you want to get, make real change, run for office. And especially mm -hmm. today, uh, I am so inspired, Ethan, by your nations, that there are so many women running for office now more than ever before. Yeah. And when I see them on, on the news, it's so inspiring. Do that. That's where you can really put a stamp uh, and make a real change, I believe. It's going to be hard either way, but uh, much more effective. Right on. Well, I, I think I very close to 100% agree with that, and I can only not speak because I didn't work in the public sector on, on options. But I suppose maybe another way to help impact the world um, is to write books. Yes. What do you think about that? 
<laughs> well, I quit my six-figure salary <laughs> and my, <laughs> my six-figure pension. It was a golden handcuff pension uh, mm-hmm. to write books, Ethan. And everybody thought and still think I'm absolutely bonkers. But I am happier than ever before doing what I do right now. Mm. Because? Because I write what I what the fire that's burning in my belly, I put it out into words to share a really important message that, that I look at it as in, in my deathbed, what would I regret? And if I don't write the books that I'm writing right now, I think if I stayed in my job and at 80, 90, 100, what have you, I look back and I realize I hadn't done that one thing, um, that would have been a very sad. So, um, and, and the way I think that I, I do my little bit in changing the world is by telling stories of, of people who cannot speak. So I tell those stories of especially women around the world whom I've sat next to, I've worked with, went to school with, I have traveled with, I have uh, stayed at their homes in their countries and, and among their cultures and realize that there are many billions of people out there whose voices are subdued. Mm. And so if I can tell their stories, then I feel like I have done some an important job the way I see it. Might not be for everybody, but it is for me. Right, and it is for somebody, and that's mm. that's important. And so, you're writing in a couple different ways. You're you're writing thriller novels, and you're writing inspi- inspirational nonfiction. And yes, yeah. yes, and there are targeted to two different groups of people. Um, the thriller novels they're international, and they tell the stories of a small ragged tagged group of young women and, and a couple of men join them as well um and they come from the most harshest of circumstances around the world from from the brothels of of, of eastern europe there's mm. white slavery that still happens today ethan that nobody talks about i also talk about bring girls in from the slums of india from the refugee camps of africa mm. and these are the Women, young women and men whose voices aren't heard. So I bring them in, but I don't bring them in as victims. I give them um, a lot of empowerment. They, they empower each other. They, they go through hardship, but they stand up, they speak up, they fight back, and they, they grow together and become a family of sorts, the found family, I think they call it. And they go out there to help others who are also in trouble. Uh, and of course, it's, because it's an international thriller, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gunfights and car chases and, and the girls learn how to ride motorcycles and they're out there on their Yamahas and Suzukis and you know, with, with a submachine gun on their backs. It's, mm. it's a thriller, it's a Hollywood thriller. And, and so yeah, I'm having such a ball writing those. So th- those are my fiction uh, novels with the hope that I can entertain to educate people mm. about those girls around the world. Entertain to educate, yeah, I like that. And then for the nonfiction. My nonfiction are geared towards the, the women like me on this part of the world who are struggling to find what they want to do in life. And, and I suppose those books, really, they, they, they share a message to anybody. It doesn't have to be women. A lot, some men read it as well. But it's just, as you know, Ethan, as an author, we have to target a very particular slice of 
the the market so i have decided mm-hmm. i know women i'm one of them so and i know what it's like to go through different stages in life so what is it like uh, what kind of problems do women have as they go through from the 20s to 30s to 40s and one of the biggest issues is trying to figure out what our purpose in life is what our passions are and i know that sounds so cliche but i think one of the reasons i stayed in my job for so long was because i was lost i was trying to figure out i'd done i've done the the right thing i put myself through university i cleaned toilets i was a chambermaid mm-hmm. i did whatever i could because i i started from nothing um to put myself through uh, doing the right thing put yourself through school get that job pay your taxes buy the home do all the right things and when you're miserable um so i'm targeting my non-fiction books to empower women who are were are in a position i was to tell them to give them the resources that i used to get myself out of it and to help them figure out what is it you do you really want to do do you really do you want to become a novelist a baker an astronaut um you know whatever it is an engineer or maybe you want to take your family on a sailboat around the world people do that and yet we stop ourselves from doing what we want to do because we either put limitations on ourselves or we are too fearful of taking that leap because we as human beings are conditioned to worry about what we will lose mm. versus what we will gain so we only see potential losses versus potential gains and we stop ourselves from doing what might give us an incredible life and so those books are all about uh, finding your passions and your purpose and then because in my corporate world i I manage large scale like multi-million dollar national international projects so I've got that project management 101 in my head and I said mm. well wait a minute if you want to go from here to to a dream I can codify this in a project management language but in a way that any any lay person can understand so I took out the corporate language I took out all the extra the the maths and the the science behind it and i just said here you go a very simplified process on how you from here to there a road map a treasure map if you will and i'm by next to you holding your hand to make so you can make the change and do what you love to do if that makes any sense it so. makes a lot of sense and so i hear implied in this although it may not be visible to everybody listening and especially those who may be relating to what you've described um like how do you what did you have to overcome like what was your turning point to find that fearless voice or to begin to look for the gains instead of the losses that's a good question i think there were two times in my life when i felt um you know what's funny they say they say and you know this ethan um i think i've read your book as well so i know you you've also gone through a lot of change and and uh, and you know that adults change through crisis Mm-hmm. while young children they they're always on on alert it's just the way we are, when we're young we're always looking at exploring experimenting testing and maybe getting hurt a bit but then getting back up and running again right and as adults we tend to wait for a crisis to hit us so the two times um that i felt the earth beneath me shake a bit that i had to stand up and go wait a minute i need to take a take a look at where i'm right now and where i want to be and that was the first one was when i left my 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 family home as soon as we immigrated to canada i remember getting up there and saying i'm in a free country i'm getting up there hmm. and that really shakes you up and and because 
I, at least I spoke the language because I went to international schools all my life, but I was in a new country, a new continent, knew nobody, had no family. And all of a sudden you have to figure it all out. So that was one I found it was really a defining moment where you have no choice but to stand up and grow a spine right? mm. and do what you have to do. And the second time was um, 15 years into my career, my work at my job, at my very stable uh, golden handcuff job. I had uh, in two years, a series of events happened very quickly, one after the other, that made me, again, the ground shake underneath me and ask my, so that I would ask myself whether this is what I want to do. And they included um, myself having a breast cancer scare. It was mm. a false positive, I think they call it. So in the end, it was okay. Um, but I had a couple of girlfriends around me who went through melanoma cancer, breast cancer, uh, a brain tumor. These are smart, savvy, educated women who are working with me. And they were hitting their 40s and all of a sudden uh, working really hard and like me, nose to the grind, wanting to get the next promotion. And they were getting sick. Um, and then I had uh, somebody very close to me uh, get into a motorcycle accident. And, uh, and I remember I'm the one who called 911. I remember seeing him uh, pinned under the motorcycle right in front of my house and uh, shocked uh, to the core and seeing your loved one in a coma, uh, somebody who was as strong as a, as a, as a bull, in one second, he's dri driving this motorcycle straight on and the next, within half a second, uh, your life could be over. So a whole series of these incidents just happened one after the other and a few people in my family passed away from chronic illnesses, which really woke me up to say, am I living the life I want to live? Am I, am I staying healthy in mind, spirit, body, and relationships and environment and my work? And that's what led to really me putting those, writing those nonfiction books, because I felt I had all these lessons I wanted to put together for someone else, hopefully before they hit a crisis. Mm -hmm. That's a humane thing to do. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I can relate to that. I mean, I know a lot of what I write is because I'm hoping somebody will maybe be spared having to have made those choices that led to, to exactly to all that. Yeah, and giving them a bit of inspiration and hope, and and totally. knowing that knowing that we're not alone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we're not. Um. So. What led you to writing as a way to express your purpose? Um, that's quite funny. I kind of fell into it. I've been reading all my life ever since I was, so I grew up in, I was born in Asia, but I grew up in a little island called Sri Lanka, but I grew up in East Africa, Tanzania, <laughs> Kenya, Zambia, and uh, lived, lived in like mining towns, remote mining towns. And, uh, the only thing you have when you move around so often are books. Books were my friends uh, because you're always the odd one out, right? Even in international schools, you're like, who is that girl, the new girl? Um, so books were my friends and I would just devour them and learn, you know, read even books I wasn't probably, shouldn't be reading, but I mm. read as much as I could. And it's funny, you ingrain all that into you. And then I went on a trip. I was about 10 years into my career and my then husband got a diplomatic posting in Europe, in, in continental Europe, in, 
in Brussels. And I followed him there, not knowing what, you know, putting my career on hold, thinking Europe will be an amazing experience. I got my MBA while I was there and I also worked for NATO. So it turned out to be really amazing um, move, even though I felt just before I left, oh my God, what am I doing? Mm. You know, I have a job, but, but in the end it turned out well. But that experience after 10 years of stability of being in, a, in, the, in, in Canada and, and, and trying to do my, get my education, get my job, all of a sudden I was back as I was as a child in a new country and a new place where I didn't speak the language very well, it was Flemish, French, French I knew a little bit, but y- y- when you travel and you live in a different place, I think other than a crisis, that's another way to get yourself shaken up and there were a lot of things that happened because we, you know, in Brussels is a center of Europe, really. So you can, you know, in two hours, you'll, you're in Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris is just so, everything's so nearby. And it's such a different cultures, different languages, and you, you really get shaken up in good ways and bad ways because there's culture shock in every way you can think of. And when I came home from that assignment, my then husband finished his posting and I said goodbye to NATO. We both came back to government jobs. And I remember sitting down back home in Canada going, I have to get it all out. Uh, What I saw in Brussels, in Paris, in Portugal, there were so many of these amazing experiences, good, bad and ugly. And then I realized as I was writing that first book, which never got published, was I have even a more important story to tell, not about Europe, but about Africa and Asia, where I grew up, where really the light uh, in my belly was fired up, where what I felt was those women's issues in those countries was what really made me, what bothered me, what made me want to write about. Um, the, the European stories were all fun travel stories. So I started writing the travels. I've got two books that I wrote, but I never, no, nobody's ever seen them uh, about the, the European trips. But it was funny that led to me saying, I want to create a little character who, a young character who's facing the adversities I saw growing up a long time ago and show how she overcomes them. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. And so it became something you had to do and you had an intimate relationship with books already. And it sounds like you pieced that together. Yes. I, I don't, you're a writer as well, Ethan. So I, you probably understand it when I say this, I am compelled to write. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm just mm. compelled. I was never compelled to manage that large infrastructure project. I did it because no. it's my job. <laughs> no. no, I was never compelled to manage performance measurement uh, plans for NATO. I mean, I did it and I yeah. did it well, I like to think. but uh, Wouldn't that be know. a great character, by the way? <laughs> like, what if there was somebody who was born for that job specifically? Well, there are, but the one thing I noticed, and and I'm speaking totally broadly here, and maybe out of turn, but I didn't, when I speak with authors today, regardless of where their background is or where they come from, there is that little spark inside of them. Um, I did not see that in the bureaucratic world. They would they would get sparked up when they talk about their kayak trip or their their trip to, to Borneo or, or what they did, um, the, the, the project they did on the weekend. Mm-hmm. But then we would 
get back to work, put the PowerPoint presentations up and look at each other and straighten our jackets and, and pearls and get back to work. But there was no spark in that. Yeah. Which, which maybe was my experience, but after 15 years working in five departments and I've worked with USA departments, British, Australia, I, I just felt like everybody found this spark outside. And my thinking with this change was, can we live that spark every day um, mm -hmm. instead of just keeping it for the weekends? Or when we are retired at 60 with an amazing golden handcuff pension, but you might not be healthy to live and mm -hmm. enjoy that. I actually had two uh, very dear colleagues of mine who hit 55. They decided to take early retirement because at 60, we get a full pension in the Canadian federal government. And it's an amazing, called the golden handcuff because it is one of the best in the world, literally. Mm. And they both sadly at 55, six, seven, they passed away mm. with heart attacks. So, I mean, that is too young to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that hits home and, you know, so much, so many parallels for me and my own career and life before being self-employed and doing what I love. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thesis statement of the whole thing is why wait to live? Like there, right. th there's gotta be other currencies besides just money that have meaning. And I think one of those big currencies is time. And another one is health. Yes. And if you're losing time and health at the expense of money, I think you're actually coming out behind. Like there's a debt that you're accruing. Absolutely. A, a very difficult place to be when you get there, right? Right. And like you're never going to be as young as you are now. Like yep. even if you start now and you made a jump, you're never going to be as young or as healthy as you are now. Exactly. Unless, you know, and we all have our different paths as far as what we're passionate about and what our dreams look like and i'm excited that you're pursuing yours and so you you make this jump you're passionate about writing except maybe you haven't jumped yet when you found this passion like how did you turn the corner from i need to write to i am a professional author <laughs> like with craft and i understand my business and <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm a little reticent to call. Doesn't it. that happen instantly? Does that happen instantly to Kira? To Kira, am I, or am I just like totally crazy? Like if I start writing tomorrow, two months later, I'm, I'm like my life's changed. Right? <laughs> the the instant uh, uh, what do you call it? overnight success? Yes, <laughs> yes. That is hilarious. Uh, you, I think we all think of like to think that could be true, but mm. we all know it's not. It took me, I started writing my travel stories in 2010, as soon as we returned from Europe, and it's what, 2019 now? Mm. Um, I also did something which, uh, keeping in mind, I'm, I am somebody that, that people gave me a few million dollars and said, manage it end-to-end, -end, report on it. So I use that same, those same processes and concepts to manage my exit. Mm. And I decided I need to come up with, first of all, I need to figure out if I can write well and if I can write worthy of somebody reading. And so I put a few, um, few um, actions to make sure to, to answer that question. And then I did a business plan to mm. say, um, does, this, does this really work? Are there actually people making money and doing well writing books or, or following whatever the part that I had 
I was thinking for myself at that time. And the third thing was also very key. It's, it's um, essential. It's, it's the financial plan. So I sat down and, and again, I, I do financial plans at a very large scale for others, for organizations. So I did one for myself. So a business plan, a financial plan, and then kind of like a, a new career plan. And it took me almost five, six years to, to not just figure it all out, but then to put something together that made me go, I'm still uncertain of the future. We always will be. I did risk management for the large <laughs> organization. So the first thing that always came up to my mouth, out of my mouth was the future is uncertain. If you think you can control, even if you are the biggest defense organization in the world, we have that is within the parameters within which we need to make the best decisions. And here is how you can make the best decisions this was always how I started my mm. field. So I did that to my, gave myself a speech and said, yes, so things are going to be uncertain. And, and, but at the same time, you can risk manage your way. Um, and again, you know, tomorrow I could get hit by a bus or who knows, get some right. chronic illness. I, the, there's, there's, there's no guarantees in life, but I can find, uh, do the best I can to minimize the negative risks. And I always like to think they're positive risks. No, some risk managers don't like it when I talk about these, but they're always positive potential outcomes. So look at what those are and work really hard to make those come true and, and minimize the negative consequences. So I, I put that mindset in and put those plans together. I actually hired in the end, uh, even a financial advisor, just, and I showed her my financial plan, paid her about $2,000, mm-hmm. but it was worth it because she looked at it and said, you're more prepared than anyone else I've seen. You can go out and do it. What's the worst that can happen to Kiri? You put your pearls and your heels and your suit back on and you knock on doors like you did in Belgium and find yeah. a job. Yeah. So, um, so I think, I think most of us worry so much about uncertainty. And what's interesting, Ethan, was I've been preaching to senior executives all about, we need to, for example, climate change. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's mm-hmm. really important to us. Uh, <laughs> we, we have the North Pole right here. And that's one of the things I would you know, bring up. Um, immigration changes a country's, uh, and perhaps it's not an American issue as much as Canadian, um, changes the dynamics of, a, of an entire nation, especially a, especially a smaller nation with a smaller population. We're a huge country, but small number of people. Uh, how do we make sure that we, we achieve these goals, but we still manage it in a way that we have the outcomes we desire? Um, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Uh, maybe I'm going too much into detail no, on risk management. Yeah. But but um, I think d- applying those principles and, and it does it sounds a little more complicated than than and than what I did because it's it's my corporate speak that's coming out. But really and really, <laughs> what my books do is is personalize and and put it into layperson's language. So how do you and, and if somebody comes to me today and asks me how did you make the jump, I'll say, well, book one was how you find where you want to go. Book two is project manage that exit. And book three is how you, um, how you make sure that even though you are trying to climb your personal Everest, how you make sure that you, as you said, do it in a healthy way. You're balanced with your relationships, with your personal physical health and all these other things that we need to look at. So, so yeah, um, mm. I don't know if I answered your question. There. <laughs> you are. And, you know, so it's not the first time I've said it already in this interview, but clearly you've got passion and you can communicate clearly about what you care about. 
and you you found for yourself a way to justify rationalize and feel good about jumping making this jump to pursue your dreams and yes and it sounds like you're a cheerleader for helping others do the same absolutely that's the whole reason i wrote those books yeah. <laughs> the non-fiction books and they're called the rebel diva series because <laughs> I think we need to be more rebels. And I don't mean rebel as in the rebels in a desert with the AK-47. <laughs> I'm talking about the, the rebelliousness of ourselves to move away from what society, family, community, the media tells us how we should live mm -hmm. and follow our own paths. And, and uh, I see it more on women, especially. We're not only told what we should do, but also what we must look like mm -hmm. uh, to be accepted, especially in the Western world. I mean, the media decides who is pretty and not, and that's uh, hence bulimia, hence anorexia. Uh, it's not something I certainly saw in Africa or Asia. Now, yes, it's growing, but it's, uh, so, so, so we women especially, I think we need to put our hand out and say, hey, stop, this is my life. This is where I want to go. And unabashedly, and with all the bodaciousness we have within us and men and women just move forward and follow mm. what you want to do and i'm finding that every time i take a step forward more doors open up and none of this would have opened up if i had been stuck in a boardroom somewhere in the depths of capital city of canada mm. <laughs> some uh, government yeah. building i get that and so like Maybe one of the reasons more people don't jump, right, or follow their dreams is because part of our identity, I know that research shows that part of our identity is informed by who we're surrounded by, right, yes. and the values and, and beliefs that, of the people around us and closest to us. And when we're working a day job, right, that's at least a third of our day, every day, we're surrounded by, you know, a certain set of beliefs and what like how did your surroundings in terms of people and beliefs shift like how do you shift that or what did that look like to connect with um with feeling like you've attached yourself to something that's realistic and you're not alone that is a fantastic question something maybe we all need to ask ourselves. Um, I had a little taste of that when I moved from Canada to Europe, um, leaving my, putting my job on hold. We, we, we have um, sabbaticals when your spouse moves overseas on a diplomatic mission. Mm -hmm. So they said, you can have a year off, but you come back, your job is here. So everything's extremely secure. And being in a government job, I still have my pension. But that move was the first taste of change for me in my adult life. It was maybe the first little rumble underneath my feet, but it was interesting. All of a sudden, I went from being my title, which I, I, I think we all do this when we get to the corporate world. You are your title. You are your job. Mm -hmm. I, certainly was, I certainly was all that, and everything that I did was wrapped around that title. And then the next one and the next promotion I got 
And I remember the day I had to leave my smartphone behind because I was on leave, right? And walking into the IT department's office and handing them this amazing little thing that I considered myself to that made, that gave me the connection that gave me, I don't know, it was like a symbol of my title, my, my work and handing it over and realizing I no longer have a team. I no longer have a title. I no longer have that job. But of course, in the back of my mind, I knew it was there for me to come back in a year or, or three years in this case. But that was kind of shocking. And then then leaving that behind and saying, now that's no longer me. I'm a new me. I'm a new me who's who wants to go and get a master's and I'm a new me who's going to explore Europe. I mean, these are opportunities that most people would love to have. And here I was struggling with, oh my God, I have to hand over my we used to, the government of Canada uses Blackberry. So mm-hmm. my Blackberry, I've lost my Blackberry was my biggest thing that kept me up at night. But I think that was good, good experience to have because when I decided to make my final exit, of course, leaving the Blackberry behind was, was absolutely not a problem this time around. But you make a good point, the people around you. So I did make a change. I moved across the country from the east to the west coast. And I did put myself, uh, I put all my belongings. And, and I also said goodbye to my then husband, a wonderful man. But it was time for us to, to say goodbye. And it was very sad. We both cried. And, and uh, we, it was time for us to, um, we were growing apart. And it was time for us to let each other live our lives to the fullest. Um, and of course, I always keep in touch with him and I wish him the best, but those, so that was a huge shift. All of a sudden I was by myself. So I moved over to, to the West Coast. I put everything I brought with me into a um, container, into one of those storage places. And I decided to live in an Airbnb for one year until I found my own home. Um, And one of the reasons is Vancouver is so expensive, so I had no choice. I came Mm -hmm. here going, wait a minute, uh, nobody can afford a home in Vancouver. Uh, So so the reality hit me, but also what I did was just the idea of staying at an Airbnb and living in different cities and in British Columbia all over the place uh, was Mm kind of neat. I think that forced me to get out of that, the corporate, government environment. I was away from all of that. I was working remotely. I was very fortunate to have a boss who said, "You, I don't care where you're going. <laughs> and she said, you're not allowed to go, but I don't care where you're going, but get your laptop at 7 a.m. Ottawa time. I need to see your face. I need to have the report. No negotiations, no nothing, or you're coming back. Mm. So I was extremely fortunate, but I was went all over British Columbia and I worked my day job and and did what i had to do but that was a huge shift so mm-hmm. i guess i was fortunate in a way but you don't have to put your fly across the country put your stuff in a storage bag divorce your spouse uh, you don't have to do all that I, but you I think, can but you, but you can <laughs> but the thing is ethan again going back to fear and your your podcast i think it's based on this concept of it, we're going to die, all of us. That's We are mortal human beings. For goodness sake, when we're 80, 90, 100, are we going to look back and, and have all these regrets for not taking the leap? Mm. It's it's We should be fearful of dying with regrets, of having the regrets, the ghost of regrets, I think someone said, flitting around your deathbed, taunting you to say, well, you could have, you could have traveled the world. You could have 
gone on the sailing boat. You could have yeah. said hello and, and asked that person to marry you. You could have taken that job or started that business, you know, and that's what we should be fearful about. Yeah. You, you know, what pushed me over the final ledge. I mean, I've made a number of leaps over the years, but I think the final one for me was just having a second child several mm -hmm. years after the first one and looking at it with a different lens and being like, what if I teach this child that like, what if I teach this child fear and limitation? Mm. Like, and, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. And I just don't want to do that. And so I'm lucky that my partner and I, that we both have this lens of we're going to teach our children how to succeed, like whatever that word means and by, by us investing in ourselves, right? Like that's going to be the teacher example you've become role models to your own children. Yeah. And like nothing would be worse for me than destroying my child's life by not living. And right. so I, maybe this is a good final question to leave it. Um, for you, what is success? I love that question. Um, I think success is finding the work that brings you joy and it's not just the work. I think it's the lifestyle that brings you joy. And that could be, that's different for everybody, right? Mm. For myself, and it's also different depending on your age, your life circumstance, uh, where you are in life. And for me right now, it's, um, I wake up every morning and I jump out of bed and I go, oh my God, I get to write my next chapter. Mm. Oh my God. And it could be tough. It could be one of those hair pulling uh, I don't know, there's a plot hole here and, and do I give them submachine guns to shoot the bad guy and what if, you know, all those plot holes come up and it can be excruciatingly painful. But the idea that this is what I am doing, that mm. joy, uh, there's no such, there's no happier feeling knowing that I'm spending a lot, most of my time, because we all spend a lot of time at work doing something that just um, lights you up and energizes you. And not only that, hopefully leaves a legacy behind for others so they can look at you and go, uh, I'm hoping there are billions of, there are 800 million people who are illiterate in this world. There are 130 million young girls who are pulled out of school because their parents themselves believe girls do not need to be educated. So they're married off. These are young children, nine, 10, 11. Um, it's just horrifying. And I say, if, if like you, how can I live my life so I can show others what's possible and especially those girls around the world and, and enjoy what I do. I think um, that is, I mean, that joy, you can't buy it. Mm -mm. Right? No, but you can create it. Yes. And you said something really important earlier on about time being a valuable asset. Mm. Time's going to pass by anyway. And what we do with our time right now I think it's so important. And we're always thinking, oh, next year when I retire, but what is it that we can do now to give us so much joy and help others around us? Right. Uh, and we can't buy time either, right? No, no so it's kind of non, it's a non-renewable resource just, right. just as health can be. Right, yeah. right. 
But so, money is a renewable resource. It's, yes, but time is not. Yes, it is. Exactly. And time is not something, I mean, right now, a second has gone by. It's gone. That's our life, Ethan. It just, we just went by. Um, and we're getting closer to an ending because we are mortal. And it could be long now that we have so many health improvements and, and you know, medical improvements that maybe we'll live up to 100, 200. Mm. It doesn't matter, but there's still an ending and we're not getting younger. Um, so I think, so I think you asked me what success means. Yeah. And I think it means not just living a joyful life so that you enjoy the work you do, but I, I believe in my opinion, it's living in the environment and doing the work that makes you an, a person of integrity. When I worked for that six-figure salaried amazing job, when I walked through those glass doors, I became someone else. I wasn't mm. me. And mm. I sat in those boardrooms. I would, I would talk to people and I would be a very harsh manager to the point I'm sure I heard through the great point, people saying, you don't want to work for that little Asian woman. <laughs> She's tough as nails. And they would be scared of me. And, and I'm thinking, that's not me. That's mm. certainly not me. That was that, there's a different person who I, persona I created looking at my bosses, looking at the culture. Right. And the real me is somebody who wants to, to, to just dance around the world and tell people, um, for God's sake, wake up, don't be a zombie. Um, and at the same time, let's help those who are much more unfortunate and who don't have everything that we have. Mm. That's beautiful. And so where can listeners find you? You can go to um, takiriherad.com, which is my first name, last name. But if you're interested in my nonfiction books, it's uh, Rebel Divas with an S, rebeldivas.com. And for my non my fiction, my international thriller novels, you can go to redhealedrebels.com. Mm, lots of rebels. <laughs> yes. Well, Takiri, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast. <laughs> <laughs>